So thank you for being here this morning, first of all. And uh, it's wonderful to see everyone's faces. We have a few people missing. Matt, uh, Irving, our normal elders, out a little bit. Um, he'll be back um, next week. He's down in Colorado visiting some friends and uh, doing a little fly fishing down there. I got a picture from him yesterday. So <laughs> knee deep in the water down there. So he seems to be enjoying himself and having a good time. Last hurrah of the summer, so to speak. And I know there's a few other people out traveling today. Um, for those that don't know me, I see a few unfamiliar faces. My name's Ray Williams. I'm one of the deacons here. Um, and I'm going to be filling in uh, for the message today. Uh, we've been speaking from 1 Timothy, and uh, we will be doing so again today in chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. Let's go ahead and read that first, and then we'll pray. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are that are not, cannot remain hidden. Thank you, Heavenly Father, we have for this uh, chance to come before you today, the wonderful opportunity that we're given to worship you. We are blessed to live in a country where we can freely gather this morning and do so. And Heavenly Father, we lift you up. We pray that as we study these words that we will hear from you, that we will Take what you have to say to us deep within and let it change us and mold us for the future. Amen. So in our last study with Matt Irving, we examined the first part of chapter 5, um, verses 1 through 16. And this part of the text looked at the major topic of the letter to Timothy, really, which was that of church leadership. The first 16 verses of chapter 5 dealt with the office of the deacon, and the behaviors of others and some of the, what their role is to do in there. And the remainder of chapter 5, 17 through 25, deals with the office of pastor or elder. Now, Paul has previously talked about the role of elder. Interestingly enough, I happened to be filling in that week as well, and uh, we covered that as well in verse, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And you, if you were here, you may remember that in our study of that portion of the letter, we noted that the New Testament uses several different words to describe the function of the same office we call pastor or elder. So whether referred to as pastor, which could be poimen in Greek, literally meaning shepherd, 
elder, presbyteris, literally referring to maturity, or bishop, episcopos, meaning overseer, they are all functions of the same office. So they're interchangeably used. Paul begins this section of the letter by telling the church, let the elders, which he uses presbyteris here, who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. It is unfortunate that the word rule is used here in the translation. That word in our language implies that these men are bosses, that they have to be obeyed, that they're governors over the congregation. But these men are actually more like leaders. The word prostestis mean, used there means leads, and is the common word for leadership. So the verse would read, let the pastors who lead well be worthy of double honor. Paul goes on to say, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine, or the preaching and teaching. Although it is little understood by someone who has never had the responsibility to prepare a message, it's extremely hard work if done correctly. Sometimes this is seen that church members are sometimes hard-pressed for the right thing to say to a pastor after a service. I was reading online once that a pastor said he had such things said to him as, you always manage to find something to fill the time up. I don't care what other people say. I like your sermons. If I'd known you were going to be good today, I would have brought a neighbor, somebody once said to him. Somebody once told him, did you know that there's 243 panes of glass in the windows? My personal favorite on the lift was, preacher, that wasn't half bad. So it's important that one who's going to deliver the word of the Lord should come to the pulpit prepared. One whose responsibility is the break of the word of God as people should come to the pulpit and be ready to do so fully and understanding what it is they are speaking of. I love the story that was once told that one pastor never prepared during the week. On Sunday morning, he'd sit on the platform while the church was singing the hymns, desperately praying, Lord, give your message. Lord, give me your message. And one Sunday, while deliberately praying for God's message, he heard the Lord say, Ralph, here's my message. You're lazy. Paul has said in verse 17 that one who is worthy of honor is the one who labors in word and in doctrine. He said, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The word labor, kopaya, means to toil or work hard. Paul, having set out the reason why pastors should be honored, he now sets out to explain how this honor is to be displayed. And that brings us to the subject of today's message. While previously, when we spoke about elders, we focused on what are the qualities of an elder and what are the responsibilities of an elder and the responsibilities of a congregation in selecting an elder. Now we focus on the congregation, 
What are the responsibilities as the body to worthy honor our elders? Well, the first thing that we see is in verse 17 through 18, that we are to worthy them or honor them by deeming them worthy of financial support. For the scripture says, let elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now I have to admit, I've been uncomfortable delivering this message. It's always hard when you stand up here and talk about money to a church. A pastor speaks to his congregation about honoring the church leaders seems about as tacky as Congress voting them in the Congress than giving themselves a raise. But be that as it may, Scripture says that the church leader is not to be counted worthy of double. The church leader is to be counted worthy of double honor. So what does that mean? Well, it means twofold honor. Our honor is shown in multiple ways. So first, there is to be an attitude of honor towards them. As in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13, where Paul says, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you, are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. But beyond this attitude of honor, secondly, there is to literally be financial support for them as they work, in some form. That is, those whose calling is, calling is communicating the truth of Scripture and are worthy of the church's financial support. In fact, from this Greek word, we get our English word honorarium, which refers to money given someone to honor them. In support of his claim that pastoral leadership should be paid, oh wait, something didn't print right. Oh yeah, in, in support of Paul's claim that pastoral leadership should be paid, he quotes from two undeniable sources. First, he appeals to the Old Testament in verse 18, for the scripture says. This comes from Deuteronomy, and it says, it says in Deuteronomy, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. But in Deuteronomy 25, 4, we have, you shall not muzzle the ox when it is treading out the grain. So for those that don't know what he's referring to, he's referring to when you harvested grain in the ancient times, you brought it to a big threshing floor. Oftentimes this threshing floor, at least for the people that could afford it, was a large stone, shallow dish on a high, windy plateau. And you would bring, you would put the grain into the bottom of it, and it had a track there, and you would chain an ox to a bar in the middle that would walk circles over the top of the grain. And as it walked over it, it would separate the chaff from the wheat, and then you would remove the ox, and then somebody would come in and on a windy day, throw the grain into the air and the chaff would blow away. You had clean grain to process and to flour and to eat. Although the comparison of pastors of oxen may not be very flattering to us, it is true. 
And what the Israelites were commanded to do was to let the oxen, as they labored, eat a little of the grain, rather than forcing them to labor all day while looking down at something that they would find quite delicious. <laughs> it was to give them worthy of their wages. The point here that Paul is making is that even the oxen has the right to benefit from his labor. So a leader called the full-time leading and teaching of the church has the right to some form of financial support from the church. Paul later more fully spells out this principle in 1 Corinthians 9, 7-12, where he says, Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock, do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, and that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should partake of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, it is a great thing. If we reap your material things, if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul also quotes Jesus when he says, The laborer is worthy of his wages, for this is a word-for-word -word quote of Luke 10.7. Thus, Paul uses both the Old Testament and the New Testament quotation for his case that the churches are to pay their pastors or other full-time workers. Now, ideally, that would be on a scale as similar to the living wage and congregational wages of those that are the same age, education level, and responsibilities within the church. Obviously, though, practicality dictates that the size, ability of a church to pay has to be considered. We find that found ourselves in a situation where we lost many of our members and we had a church split. We are honoring those that give the word by a small stipend, as we call it, um, as a pastor um, pulpit supply. Um, Right now, but we aren't offering a wage to anyone that is here. But as God provides for us, that is something we need to consider. And the one reason to do so is not just to honor the person delivering that message, it is to honor God. Because we are saying that the effort that this elder we have chosen to elect, the person we have chosen to deliver the word to us, that that is worthy, but that the word of Lord being delivered to us is worthy of our finances. It is worthy of our honor. And by doing so, we honor God. You know, many don't understand what an elder or a pastor does with this time, and sometimes it's difficult to explain it. I was trying to figure out a way to search that, and I found uh, an explanation from a retired pastor that said this. The pastor teaches, though he must solicit his own classes. He heals, though without pills or knife. He's sometimes a lawyer, often a social worker, something of an editor, a bit of a philosopher, an entertainer, a salesman, a frontman for public functions, and he is supposed to be a scholar. 
He visits the sick, marries people, buries the dead, labors to counsel those who sorrow and admonish those in sin, and he tries to stay sweet, even when it is difficult even when being chided for not doing his duty. He plans programs, appoints committees when he can get the volunteers, spends considerable time in keeping people out of each other's hair. Between times, he prepares a sermon and preaches it on Sundays or sometimes Wednesdays because some other people may have another engagement or work. And then on Monday, he smiles when some jovial champ says to him, what a job. You only have to work two days a week. Luther's principles of a good elder are, he should be able to teach plainly and in order. He should have a good head, good power of language, a good voice, a good memory. He should know when to stop. He be, should be sure of what he means to say, and he should be ready to stake body, soul, goods, and reputation on its truth. He should study diligently and suffer himself to be vexed and criticized by everyone. So the job of a pastor or an elder is a difficult one. It carries a heavy responsibility to deliver the word accuracy, accurately and to look over this flock. So the second way we honor them is we honor them that they are treated fairly. Verses 19 through 21 say, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who were in leadership in the church in Ephesus were worthy of double honor because they did their job with integrity. However, there were others who were failing. So Paul develops here how the offending brethren were to be disciplined. Paul says the church is not to receive an accusation. Receive means to accept an accusation as true and accurate. No accusation against a church leader is to be considered true unless it comes from at least two witnesses. In other words, the leaders were to receive the same protection as everyone else in the laws of the land of the day. If this procedure were observed, it would cut down a great deal on gossip, misunderstanding, strife that goes on in our common churches today. Frankly, it's a big reason why we had a church split, as this procedure was not followed in this very body. Paul says that the pastor and every member of the church should refuse to let anyone whisper into his ear, gossip about the pastor or a church officer, and people should be able to prove their accusations before witnesses. The important thing is that you should have the facts before you talk. If you have the facts, rather than scatter a scandal abroad, you should seek to correct the problem by going through the proper authorities, the channels. And any accusation should be given to more than one witness. 
But if the facts are known that a church leader is in sin, he is to be rebuked. The question arises, is this to be done publicly? Usually it's a safe rule that private sins should be dealt with privately and public sins publicly. It is either right nor necessary to make what is private public unless all other options have been exhausted. However, when a leader of the church, an officer of the church sins and it has hurt the church, then it is time for that to become a public issue. Because great harm can be done to a church by sin in the life of its leaders. And this is the way Paul says it should be dealt with. Further, verse 21 states, Observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Within this verse, there seems to be two opposite sides of the same problem. So, first, he says you're not to judge with prejudice against the accused, and secondly, not to judge with partiality or in favor of the accused. Judgment is to be made on honest appraisal of the facts, eliminating prejudice either for or against. So he's instructing Timothy to treat everyone in the church alike, as equals. You know, there may be an officer in a church who's a wealthy man or who's been good to the pastor. Perhaps he has brought the pastor a suit of clothes, as this once said, or helped him buy a car, whatever you want to say. That pastor might be tempted to side in favor or give partiality to them by our human nature. But Paul says that we are not to show that partiality in the church to anyone. The third way we are to honor them is by expecting them to act with integrity. We treat them as if we expect them to act with integrity. We have raised them up because of the kind of people we have seen they are, ideally, and we are to treat them as such. In verses 20 through 25, it says, Do not be hasty in the laying of hands, nor partake in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. We'll come back to that verse. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appeal later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. The overriding concept of these verses is that we expect integrity from our leaders. It may sound odd to our ears that an expectation of integrity take part in the church leaders as a means of honoring them, but when you think about it, really, it kind of makes sense. To expect church leaders to act with honesty and integrity is a resounding vote of confidence in those that you have elected. There is some difference of opinion as to what it means to lay on hands in verse 22. I found that some commenters think that Paul is referring to the process of ordination, in which case it would mean that the best way to avoid the scandal of having to discipline a leader is to thoroughly screen any candidate before they are ordained. Others believe that when Paul says lay on hands suddenly on no man, he's referring to refraining from rash judgment. Sometimes God will judge a Christian in the present, but if he doesn't judge him immediately, it does not mean that he is not going to be judged. Paul wrote about this to the Corinthians, where there were some who were not commemorating the Lord's Supper in the proper manner. In 1 Corinthians 11.30, he says, 
For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Paul said that some were already being judged by God. Some were actually sick, and others had died as a judgment of God. And he went on to say, for if we judge ourselves, should we not be judged? In verse 31. When a Christian sins, he can judge himself. That doesn't mean he is just to feel sorry for his sins. He is to deal with it. That is, if he has hurt somebody, he's to make it right. He is to turn from that sin. If he doesn't do these things, then you have not judged yourself. 1 Corinthians continues, But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world, in verse 32. The world commits these sins, and God judges. Neither is a Christian going to get by with them either. Either you judge yourself and correct the sin, or God will judge you. If you judge yourself, the matter is settled. If not, he will judge. Sometimes that judgment will occur here and now. If not, it will be dealt with when you appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The same principle applies to good works. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those are otherwise cannot be hidden. Sometimes God blesses a believer down here for something he's done for which God can reward him, and other times you won't see that reward until you reach your, our heavenly calling. Which is the case of a great many Christians. Now this is not to say that if you commit a sin and you've already been a Christian and, and you've done wrong and you judge yourself that you're now under judgment again. I'm not stating that at all. What I am saying is God will still judge that sin, but because of Jesus, you are forgiven. But it is important that if you were to truly live as a redeemed individual, that you judge yourself for it. So we honor our leaders by expecting them to act with integrity. We do not jump overboard on small things, and we take these steps to them. By doing so, we respect the decision that we have made. We honor God because we believe God has given us the direction to elect these people and has placed them in charge. There is a fourth way we honor them, and that is by encouraging them to live a healthy lifestyle. Now, bear with me here, but 523 says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. This was Paul speaking to Timothy, who was known to be a sickly individual. And what is being discussed is not the rights or wrong of consuming alcohol, but rather the consuming of alcohol as a medicine. It was commonly believed in the ancient world that wine had important medicinal benefits, that the daily consumption of it could stave off a great many ailments. So why, I think it's also considering then, why is Timothy abstaining from the use of alcohol? There could be a thousand reasons for abstaining from the use of alcohol and keeping of a sober mind, but these reasons aside, Timothy was abstaining for the wrong reasons. It appears that Timothy was abstaining simply for the abstinence sake or to make himself more holy, but what Paul is telling Timothy, he needs to take care of his physical health. 
first and foremost above. An elder cannot effectively serve the congregation if he is distracted and if he is struggling with his own health and his own issues. It's already a difficult job as an elder, as I taught before. We ask a lot of them. I think the hardest part, though, is that as an elder, we have to deal with people. Elders must deal with people. Whoever you call as a pastor has to deal with not just any people. They have to deal with dirty sinners. The congregation handed to them with us. I want to share a story I found with you that I found kind of uh, interesting and it helps uh, drive home a point that uh, I didn't see before. But one day a man passed an enclosure at the zoo and noticed that an enclosure was both a large lion and a very active monkey. The man said to the zookeeper, how does that work, having a monkey and a lion in the same cage? The zookeeper looks at him and says, oh, it works for the most part. Well, do they ever not get along? Well, yeah, every once in a while it happens, says the zookeeper. Well, what happens then, asked the man. Well, we just get a new monkey. Sadly, a similar thing can happen in our relationships both inside and outside the church. People can get on each other's nerves. They get crossways with each other, and before you know it, they either part company or they devour each other. In Paul letter, Paul's letter to the Galatians, in chapter 5, verse 15, he wrote, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be devoured by one another, or consumed by one another. When the church is not the loving environment that it should be, relationships can become fragmented. And then oftentimes the status symbol or idea is we just get a new monkey. Whether that be we get a new preacher, a new friend, go find a new church, a new body, a new thing. We simply move on. That's the modern world, right? This happens both inside the church, it happens outside the church in our lives. It's the way that the modern world seems to function. We seem to only want to surround people that we have no conflict with. You know, Linus from Peanuts was famous as saying, love mankind, it's people I, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. And I know you've all probably heard someone say, I love the church, but it's people. At some point in our experience, most of us may feel that way. We may make such a declaration. Dealing with other individuals is difficult. As I said before, it is mostly because we are all sinners. People in ministry are tough because we are all imperfect. The part of the role of a church leader is to help the church family get along with one another. R.C. Sproul once said, For a Christian to be a Christian, he must first be a sinner. Being a sinner is a prerequisite for being a church member. The Christian Church is one of the few organizations in the world that requires a public acknowledgement of sin as a condition for membership. Because all people are imperfect, and because the church is made up of people, then there is going to be problems. 
That is why Paul gave Timothy thorough instruction about how to minister among a fellowship of flawed saints. And why these words to Timothy are such an important lesson to us. Because we need to be prepared to receive and offer loving guidance, support, encouragement, honor, and correction to our elders. It is vital that we do so. So I say to you today that uh, we as a church have an opportunity here as we go forward to make sure we build our church as such a place. To sacrificially give of ourselves, our time, our efforts, our love, our commitment to one another. That by building one another together, we can build something together that cannot be broken. It requires forgiveness. It requires an acceptance that at times people are going to make mistakes. It requires us to not demand more of others than we would demand of ourselves. I am so thankful to have the body of people we have here today. Truly. I've been so blessed to be part of this body and to see people unite together and to love one another and to work together. To get to know some people in ways that I didn't know I would. And I'm thankful that you have come here to worship with us this morning. I hope these words have impacted you in some way. And I hope that I have done them justice as I delivered them. I know this is a short message today, but let us uh, close in some prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful time we've had to come together and to hear from your word. Lord, we honor you. We lift you up. We see that you are so worthy and that your word is so full of hope and truth and power. Heavenly Father, we love those that serve in this church. We love each other and we love you. And we pray for your presence, for your hand in our lives. We thank you for the gifts you've given us. And we pray that our efforts will only be a small token to repay that. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that though we are dirty sinners, each and every single one of us, and that though we fail you repeatedly, that you forgive us. It is the greatest of all mysteries. Heavenly Father, we lift you up this day and we pray in your name. Amen.